We're back in our study of, uh, I almost said Ephesians. <laughs> that, that would have been bad. Uh, we're almost, we're, we, we're almost, we are back in our study of Philippians today, rejoicing together. Uh, and so, so we're, we're um, you know, even though last week at Easter, I still, I still commented on and pointed you to see what resurrection life and that transformative power of the resurrection does in our lives uh, I, I didn't really focus on the series, uh, but we are back, picking up where we left off, diving back into the middle of the context that we had been in before Easter. And so today, as we, as we jump in, we need to read more than what we re- are going to focus on. We just need, for context's sake, for, for having an understanding of what Paul's getting at here, we need to start reading back in verse 8 of chapter 3 in Philippians, even though... Uh, where, where our focal passage is really 17 to 21. Uh, so we're going to read, going to highlight a couple of things just to, just to get some frameworks back in our mind, get some language back in our heads, and, and then we're going to uh, pray, and then we're going to dig in uh, and see what the Lord has for us today. So if you will, follow along as I read Philippians chapter 3, beginning in verse 8. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Nothing comes close to Paul's value of Jesus or the the blessings of the work that Jesus came to accomplish. The greatest treasure in Paul's mind, in Paul's life and practice is Jesus. The righteousness that comes with him and the resurrection that will come as a result of him. Everything else in contrast to this is rubbish. And this is, it, it, there's, this is a hard pill for us to swallow because there's so much stuff in this, lo- this world that we love that, that we would count good, that, that we would appreciate and enjoy. And as long as we don't allow the good things that the world has to offer to become the God things that we so often allow them to be, then we're okay. But as we recognize that Jesus is the greatest of all treasure and there is nothing worth having if we don't have Jesus, then we're okay. It, it, it is a struggle for us. We, we, we wrestle with it. It is the reality. It's, it's where we're at. But we need to grow in this. It, it's right for us to, to grow up and hold this view alongside Paul. And in fact, he's going to get to that point where he actually calls us to do that very thing. Let's pick it up in verse 12. Now, not, not that I have already obtained this or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way, and if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. So so in these verses, we see Paul's commitment and conduct... And then we see his call on his readers to do what he's doing, to think like he thinks, to, to believe like he believes, and to do the things like he does. And, and there's this, this way in which he's, he's not at all saying, hey, this is how I see it, this is what you should do, and then he goes off and does something else. He shows us his commitment to forgetting what lies behind, pressing forward to what lies ahead. His whole life is about pursuing the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And he's saying then, he turns around and says, let the mature around us or of us think like this, have this mindset, believe like this, trust these things and live this way. That's what he's calling us to. And what we do, what we, what we do is always motivated by what we believe. And what we believe is always motivated or, or, or formed, influenced by what we think. So we need to displace all the lies that the world has told us and all the things that they've sought to show us as truth and 
conform us to their way of thinking, and our minds need to be renewed by the truth of God's Word, by the truth of what God has done in and through Jesus Christ. We need to not just know them, we need to believe them, we need to trust them, we need to lean into them, rest our life in and on them. And then, the doing that comes out of that thinking and believing becomes more natural. But it still requires instruction, and it still requires an example set to be shown how to do it. And that's why Paul then says, okay, now I've shown you my life. I've shown you. I'm not perfect. I've shown you what I'm presenting or what I'm pursuing in life. I've shown you what I think, what I believe, and what I do. Now you think and do the same things. That's what he's called them to. And in case they missed it, he's going to get very pointed, not in a harsh way, but very pointed in the passage that follows. Pick it up in verse 17. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. They glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But, but, there's a contrast. I said something about the big butts of the Bible last week, and I was, I was told I missed a golden opportunity. You may not know what that opportunity is, but I love these. I love when you come to the Scripture and there's this but, because it stops you in your tracks and makes you think, this is what's going on, but there's something better coming. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body, by the power that enables Him even to subject all things to Himself. Let's pray. Father, help us now. I I just pray that you would... Help us just to humble ourselves. Help us to be attentive, to to listen, to to conform our minds to truth, to, to to point our hearts at faith and trust in Christ and your word so that we can live as we've been called to live. I pray that you do this work for the glory of your son, the glory of your name. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The point, I'm just going to start right here. The main point of this message is this. As citizens of heaven, there's a right way to live in the world while waiting on Jesus' return, and we can learn it by following the right examples. As citizens of heaven, there's a right way to live in the world while waiting on Jesus' return, and we can learn it by following the right examples. In case they missed it, in case they missed his, his reference to following and imitating and being like him, Paul makes it plain in this first verse, in, in, in verse 17. Brothers, join in imitating me. Follow my example. Think like I do. Believe like I do. Do like I do. This isn't just directed at certain people in the church either. He's writing to the whole church. He's not just writing to the, to the elders or to the deacons. He's writing to every member of this Philippian church. Think like I do. Believe like I do, do like I do, follow my example. This is the right way. There is a right way to live, and he has set the example for it. They are to be, in fact, united in following Paul's example. Brothers, join in imitating me. There's this idea that they're to come together in this process. It's, it's not a, well, one follows Paul, one follows Apollos, one follows Timothy, one follows Epaphroditus, one follows... It's, hey, here's the example set before us. Let's follow that example. That's a big deal. It's pretty bold, if you think about it, to to make that statement to call people to follow him. But I don't think Paul's self-confident. I think if you read this letter, you see he's not self-confident, but he is confident of the work of Christ in his own life. And though he he, he is readily admitting that he isn't perfect, which he did just a few, I'm not perfect, I've not already obtained this, 
But, but he is confident that his life has been so radically reoriented towards Christ, towards the upward call of God in Christ Jesus, that he is able to say, follow me, imitate me. And it's not the only time he's done this. To the church at Corinth, he calls them to imitate him as he imitates Christ, as 1 Corinthians 1, 11. To the church in Thessalonica, he says, you yourselves ought to imitate us, 2 Thessalonians 3, 7. He even instructed Timothy to have this same attitude to call others, to set an example for others. He says to Timothy, set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity. That's 1 Timothy uh, chapter 4, verse 12. It's not even the only time he's mentioned it in this letter. In the verses that we studied two weeks ago, he's saying, let the mature think like this. Think like what? Like I've just been telling you I think. The mindset that I have, you're supposed to have this mindset. You're supposed to adopt this mindset. Paul, Paul in, in, in fact, I've forgotten it now. It's, it's in, the, in the very next passage that we're going to study next week. He's going to tell them to do the things, what he's heard, what they've heard and seen and watched him do. They're going to call them to do the exact same things. The, the, the idea here is that Paul has been laying out for them from the beginning of the letter an example that he expects them and calling them to follow. He's confident in Christ's work in him, and as a result, he is calling Christians to follow him, to follow that example. He, 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 knows, he, he knows that discipleship isn't simply about gaining knowledge. He knows that people don't just need, that Christians don't just need a preacher and teacher. They need a pastor. They need someone not only to tell them how to live, they need someone to come alongside and show them how to live. Now, I don't mean intend this for any of us to be insulted by this, but that's what we do with our kids all the time. Why would we expect us ourselves as infant and less mature Christians to think that we got this all figured out? Somebody just needs to give me the information and I'll put it to practice and I'll get it right every time. We don't do that. We, not, we, we don't just need somebody to give us the information. We need someone to help us learn how to use it. We need someone to come alongside us to show us what it looks like to actually put it into practice. Now, in the day and age of distance learning and podcast listening... It's easy to go find the preachers and teachers we, we like and uh, affirm even the things that we say. Even as Christians, we have a habit of picking preachers that tickle our ears because they affirm all the doctrines we affirm. And when they start to, to, to say things we don't like, we just quit listening to them. And Paul's saying that, that, that there's more than, and, and, and don't hear me saying don't go listen to podcasts. You, we have access to some of the greatest preachers in all the world simply by pulling up a, a, an app on our phone and listening to some of the greatest preachers from, from around the world. There's nothing wrong with that. But those preachers from a distance can't be your pastors. They can't set for you an example to walk in life. In fact, I, I saw it recently. Um, he's an acquaintance of mine. He's somebody I've, I've known for a while, and I haven't seen him in a long time, so I'll call him an acquaintance. But, but he, he was... He got to meet Alistair Begg, at, and, and Alistair Begg is a great pastor. I don't, don't hear me say anything different. But he got to meet Alistair Begg at a, a, a conference recently, T4G, and he, he told the world, this was my pastor when I didn't have one. I don't think even Alistair Begg would, Begg would feel good about that because he couldn't pastor this man from a distance. He could preach for him, he could teach scripture, but he couldn't pastor, he couldn't shepherd, he couldn't guide and give life-on-life give life discipleship. He couldn't show what it looks like to live in life, what, what, what he's teaching. The weakness of, of this long-distance learning, this podcast listening, is that we assign so much weight to the people that we just barely know. It's not all bad, don't misunderstand. We can use things like longevity uh, for, for pastors, like Alistair Begg, who is a pastor in his church. And you can listen. To, I affirm, go listen to him. He's a great preacher. 
You can, you can longevity like that, that of John Piper, John MacArthur, these men who have had these long-standing ministries that have had so much reach and so much influence that you can learn from. I, I, go listen to them. But they can't be your example. They can't be your pastor. They can't show you what it's like to put these things into practice because you're not close enough to see them living it. I think, and this is just a, a, an opinion, but I think it's one of the downfalls of the megachurch movement. I'm not, I'm not against big churches. Like We planted out of a big church. I don't have a problem with that, but I think one of the weaknesses is that a person can stand up and tell you how to look at the Bible, how to read the Bible, how to study the Bible. They can teach you the truths of the Bible, and then they can walk into an office and never have to face you face-to-face with you. And you never see them in life. You never know what's going on. And there's danger in this, risk in this. And in fact, I think one example that shows the risk in all of this is last year there was a podcast that came out, The, the Rise, and speaking of podcasts, it's ironic, but The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. And so, so many of you listened to it. I know you did. I didn't listen to it because I saw many of these things happening from behind the scenes where they addressed many of the issues that happened at this church that allowed for it to, to rise, like just, I mean, it was one of the fastest growing churches in America, and then suddenly, when Mark Driscoll resigns, everything kind of crumbles, at least organizationally that we can see. This, Christians are still there, and I think there's still local congregations there, but they don't have the, the influence that they used to have. Well, I, I, think the, I think the podcast calls this out. I know that it's in some of the conversations we've had behind the scenes uh, with, with pastors that, that were involved, I, I know some of them personally, that there were red flags all along in Mark Driscoll's life. But people, when, the, when droves of people were downloading his podcast, they had no idea of the character flaws in his life. But those who were close to him, the elders saw it, and, and, and they began to approach and seek to deal with it. And there was resistance and, and struggle. Many people left, elders left, um, because of the, the character issues that were, that were coming to light. But when he was removed from an Acts 29 church planting network, and then a few months later resigned from his church, I knew people that had followed him so closely that they felt like they'd lost their pastor. That they felt like they had lost a dear friend. That they were mourning the loss and what was done to Mark Driscoll. Without any understanding of what Mark Driscoll had been doing to many of the people in his church. But they only knew him from a distance. They only knew the voice on the other end of that podcast. I I think we have to be careful about this. I think we have to be careful about how much influence we give anyone that's distant. Paul is not with the Philippians, but he spent much time with the Philippians. They knew him closely. They had a deep relationship with him. He has great affection for them. And he knows that they don't just need preaching, they need pastoring. And so he's calling them, don't just listen to what I'm saying. I'm laying my life out there for you to see it so that you can do what I do. He also knows that, that we're always being discipled by someone. Someone is always vying for your attention and seeking to influence you and lead you to believe the things they believe. Everyone's doing it. Every commercial that comes on television, they want you to believe they have the best product and will solve your greatest problems. And it's been a long time since this commercial's been out. But it's the one that comes to mind that's, that's most suited for this, at least in my mind. Calgon, take me away. As if you could just put some suds in a tub and suddenly life is peaceful. We all know that's not true. And if you've got kids at home, you know that there's, there's, those suds don't keep the kids out. Right? They're, they're, at your, they're, they're in there bugging you as soon as you put your head back. We, we know it's not true. Political campaigns, what do they want you to do? They want you to believe they're the answer. I'll never, I'll never forget this. In 2016, when Trump and Hillary were running for president, they both had the same exact messaging. I'm the answer for the, for the country. I'm the answer for the country. They just sloganed it different ways. But it was the exact same meaning. 
If you'll elect me, I'll fix all the problems in America. Now, here we are. I still think we have problems. I don't know about you, but I still think we have problems. And their messaging was filled with lies. There might have been some truth woven into it. Yeah, there's this problem, there's this problem. This, this is a way we can handle this issue. There might have been some truth, but they didn't fix anything. You can say, oh, well, you know, under Trump, it was better. <laughs> In one way. Financially, fiscally, maybe. There was lots of unrest. And he didn't help that. He wasn't the only one. Under Biden, oh, man. We've, we've seen inflation go through the roof to the point that who knows what's going to happen as a result of this. Right? I mean, this, these people, they don't, they don't have the answer for us. Sorry, these are not things. I'm just, everyone wants your attention and everyone wants to disciple you to believe like they believe. And Paul knows that. And so he's saying, look, it's not just teaching. You need to see the life in step with the teaching. You need to be able to see not only what they say, but what they do. And not only, not only does this matter because someone's always discipling us, because that's true of everyone in the world. Everyone in the world is being led around by their nose by someone. You may not like that, but it's true. You've been led to believe something by someone that's not true. Every one of us have. I'm including myself in that. Paul knows that that's happening. And he knows that it's got to stop happening. But he's so insistent about it. He's so willing to set himself out there and say, I'm the example to follow because of who these people are. Because they have great value to him. He opens this passage in verse 17. Brothers, he recognizes them as family. In, in, in chapter 4, verse 1, my brothers whom I love and long for. He has deep affection for these people. If you go back to chapter 1, you're going to see the deep affection that he has for them as he writes this letter. He wants their best. But not only is it who they are to him, it's who they are in Christ. We are citizens of heaven. We're going to deal with that more fully in just a little bit. But this, 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 this reality, he, he, he cannot just let them be led along and led astray by, by the influence of people who would be extremely influential. You need to see what they do, not just hear what they say. You need to be able to think like them, believe like them, and do like them. And the only way you can do what they do or act like them is if you know how they act. The church was never meant to be a distance education system. It was always meant to be a life-on-life reality. Now, I'm not, again, I'm not saying anything against the, the far reach, the, what some have called like the air war, like getting the word out there. Get it out there. But that's one not even a complete way in which we are discipled and, and grown in maturity so that our minds and our beliefs are shaped so that our actions are shaped. So the people reading this letter, they're, they're not the only ones that need to hear it. They're not the only ones that need to be reminded of it. All of us who come to know Jesus as Savior and Lord and Christ need to be reminded of this reality because we live in the same world they lived in. And that world has strong influence. It's got a strong message. And they seek really hard to justify their their language and and, and present themselves as, as pure and right and good. And they weave just enough truth into the into the messages that it sounds right. But those really are the worst kind of messages, where it's difficult to discern the lie that's behind the truth. But it's easy to discern the lie when you look at the life of the one who gives the message. If that life doesn't line up with what's being taught, then you know you don't listen to them. You don't give them influence. You don't allow them to have a a, a say in your life. As citizens of heaven, 
There is a right way to live in the world while we're waiting on Jesus' return, and we can learn it by following the right examples. And the beauty of it is God has given us examples to follow. He didn't didn't design it this way and determine it's going to be like this and and then hope that you found people to, to follow their example. He gave us examples to follow. Now, with all the talk about following examples, following of, of other people, I, I want to remind you of a point Dave made just a few weeks ago when he preached at the end of Philippians chapter 2, preached from the passage that, that focused on Timothy and Epaphroditus. He made a point that, that I think we need to remember. These examples that, that God gave us, these people that set an example for us, aren't so that we can be like Paul or be like Timothy or be like Epaphroditus. So that we can be like Christ. So that we can be like Jesus. That's the example. That's the, that's the supreme example. And all these, all these other, other examples are under examples. They are under Him. And we would only seek to be like them as much as they reflect Christ. The point isn't be like this person. Paul doesn't want people to be like him But in the ways that Paul is like Jesus, he wants them to be like him so they'll be like Jesus. Many of these people he's writing to never met Jesus. They didn't get to walk with Jesus. They didn't get to hear the words that he said. They didn't get to understand the tone that he said them in. They they didn't get to see him uh, walking along the road and stopping for people time and again to touch them and, and be with them and be near them and help them. They didn't get to see all of this. But they got to see Paul. And when Paul then tells Timothy, hey, by the way, set the example. Not all the people that Timothy's going to minister to got to meet Paul, let alone Jesus. They needed somebody to show them the example. They needed somebody to show them what it looks like in life. So Paul says, Timothy, you do this. You set this example so that somebody can come behind you and learn that example and then turn around and set that example so that somebody can come behind that example and turn around and set that example so that here 2,000 years later, we got people sitting in this room who are able to set the example because we've been living or, or we've been influenced by that example. And it doesn't stop at pastor to congregate. How about dad and mom to child? How about youth minister to, to teen? How about peer to peer? We need these examples in life because there is a right way to live. There is a right way to wait on Jesus' return. There is a right way to approach this. Paul doesn't only know there's a right way. He knows there's a wrong way. And he shows us the contrast here. First, he sets us out and he says, follow my example. And those, he doesn't just point to himself. He says, brothers, follow my example. Sorry, I'm on the wrong page. Let me get back here. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. So it's not just Paul. It's everyone else who's, who's setting that example. Keep your eyes on them. And there's a lot of talk. Well, we don't know. We do not know, cannot fathom completely. I mean, we can imagine, I guess. But we cannot state with certainty who those examples are. I can tell you in the context of the letter who he points to as examples. First, he points to himself. He says, follow me. He says that one pretty plainly, right? And he sets out his whole life as an example for them to follow. He's rejoicing even in hardship. He's, he's pursuing Christ as the greatest treasure. All these things. Think like this. Believe like this. Do like this. Paul sets himself out there. But he also sets Timothy and Epaphroditus. As he gives an update to the church about these two men, he highlights the qualities that make them lights shining in the world around them. Timothy and Epaphroditus are faithful, humble, selfless servants. But even in chapter 2, Paul points to Jesus as an example, and he shows him as the supreme example, because as he approaches Jesus' incarnation and speaks about what Jesus did by taking on human flesh and making himself a servant and obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. As he walks through that, he doesn't lay it out there to prove the doctrine or to answer every question that might come in, in when, when, when we think about the incarnation. He sets it out there for them to see. Have this mind, which is yours in Christ Jesus, 
who though he knew, or who, who though it was equality was, he knew equality was with God was a thing to be grasped. He humbled himself. He took on the form of a servant, becoming like a man, humbling himself in obedience, even to death, even death on a cross. This way, he sets it out there as an example for us to follow. And he doesn't just proceed it with a call to live that way. He follows it with an explanation of how we're to to emulate that example and to practice that example. He could also be referring to the elders and deacons in their church. He addresses them at the beginning of the letter. Possibly he's thinking of them. Possibly he's thinking of Sisygus or Clement that he's going to mention in the next chapter. What we do know, what we do know is that he is referring to to people who emulate Christ. And what we do know is that he's not not pointing them to follow the, the, the example of the enemies of the cross, who is the contrasting group of people that he calls out next. He's enemies of the cross. If, if you see it, brothers, join in imitating me. Keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many, because many have, as I've told you, even now with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Many of the people that you know and that you followed or that you have, have been aware of, many of these people, and he's aware of who they are, he's talked to them about them, are no longer walking and setting an example that leads people to Christ. They're enemies of the cross. And again, we don't know exactly who they are. Some think it's the Judaizers. The Judaizers were people who would follow, they followed Paul around and their religious tenet was essentially Jesus plus follow certain aspects of the law, circumcision, food laws, things like that. So, so it's Jesus plus this other stuff. You got, yeah, believe in Jesus. He's good. I'm glad he died. But really, you've got to circumcise your, 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 your boys, and, and you, got to, you can't eat pork. So no more bacon for you. That was the, not exactly like that, but essentially, that was their, that was their religious practice. Some people think that's the Judaizers that were coming and, and, and basically undermining the grace of the gospel by adding our effort and our work to it. Others think that, oh, he's not talking about the Judaizers exactly in this point. He's talking about the people on the other end of the spectrum that use their freedom in Christ as a reason to sin. And and he doesn't want us following after those people. These are enemies of the cross because they're still sinning and living these godless lives as if they're still in the church and pretending that God's grace is sufficient. We don't know. We can't know. In fact, I think I, I, I would agree with... Uh, uh, Alec Maltier, who, who makes the point in his commentary, he makes the point that we probably shouldn't try to nail it down too tight because if we do, one, we're stepping outside of Scripture and making our own assumptions, but second, then we're locking ourselves in to the enemies of the cross being this, in, in this historical context when we still face these kind of people today. We still deal with the kind of people that he's referring to. So if we nail it down to this historical context and we don't have enemies of the cross to deal with, then, oh, well, we don't need this passage anymore. It's no longer relevant. But it is relevant. We continue to deal with it. So, so through his letter and looking at the context of the, his letter, I don't know that this is exactly who he had in mind, but there are some people that he clearly says don't be like them. For example, Philippians chapter 1, verse 15, he speaks about the Christians, or at least the professing Christians, who are out proclaiming Christ. They're proclaiming the gospel from envy and rivalry, seeking to afflict him in his imprisonment. And then he turns around and says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. So don't be like these people that are doing that. So... I don't know that these are the enemies of the cross that he's necessarily referring to, but there's certainly people that he doesn't want us following their example. Then in chapter 2, verse 21, he speaks of the the people who seek their own interests. He's speaking about Timothy and sending Timothy. And if you just flip over to that passage, you'll see it. He says, I don't have anybody like him. And it says this, for they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. And he's already said, consider one another's interests more significant than your own. Put Christ, Christ is the greatest treasure of all. So he's clearly saying, don't follow that example. And then at the beginning and top of chapter 3, he, he refers to the dogs, the evildoers, the mutilators of the flesh. He, he probably was speaking about the Judaizers at that point. 
in chapter 3, verse 2. The Jesus plus your works people. They definitely are enemies of the cross if they're saying that the cross is not sufficient. They're undermining the message of the cross. They're undermining the purpose of the cross. They're undermining the work of the cross altogether by saying that Jesus is good, but you need this too. But again, we need to be careful not to lock it down too much because there's all kinds of people out there doing this kind of stuff that may not fit exactly in one of these categories. Prosperity preachers that are getting wealthy off the backs of those who listen to them. It's hard for me to even appreciate that. If Christ is being proclaimed, I'm going to fight to rejoice. But as I look at what they do and how they treat the people that, that they say they're serving, it seems more like a wolf in sheep's clothing, a wolf that's feeding on the sheep rather than feeding the sheep. There's all kinds of examples of this. They say just enough true things to bring us in, and they weave it around with the world's lies and lead us to a place that we were never meant to go. We need to be careful about who we allow to influence us. We need to be careful about what examples we follow. We need to be cautious. And, 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 and the size of the crowd isn't the best indicator. It could be fruit. It could be real. But there's lots of people in the world that, that draw big crowds, and they have nothing to do with Jesus. But let's not flip around and make the same mistake and say, oh, I walked into a small church. This guy's pastoring close with these people. I can, no. That's another mistake. Small, it's not about small church or big church. It's about does that life emulate and reflect the nature and character of Jesus Christ? So what I want to do with the remaining time is look at the rest of this passage with four. We'll move through them pretty quickly. Don't, don't get too, too crazy or too, too nervous about how long we've been here. There's four ways in which we can discern and understand a, a good and right example to follow. First, The right examples submit to the God who created, not the gods they created. Look at it in in, in this passage. He says, brothers, join in imitating me. Keep your eyes on those who walk according to the examples you have in us. So, So follow our example. Well, who do we know is a good example to follow? For many of them, I have, often to- I have often told you, and I'll tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross. How do we identify them versus the good examples to follow? Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. They are devoted to submitting their lives to, giving, giving all their effort to, committing their way to a God that they have created out of their own passions and own appetites. They are running after whatever suits them, whatever feeds their fancy, whatever satisfies them in some moment. They are self-motivated people who devote themselves to the pursuit of all kinds of other things other than glorifying Christ and the Father who sent him, who Jesus himself said, I came to glorify. They are not living for, for, for the glory of the one true and living God. They are ruled by selfish ambition and personal passions. The right examples will be humble, not striving to be God, but live obediently under God. And purposefully, they will seek to give their life to the glory of God. They won't be perfect because none of us in this room are that. But that is the right example to follow. That is the right example to set. The second thing, the right examples celebrate, celebrate purity rather than immorality. Pick it back up. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. They glory in their shame. They celebrate the things that, that, that should be, they should be embarrassed by and shamed by. They laugh at and joke about and take light the things that are destructive and, and, and destroying people. The reasons that Jesus came to die are, are the very reasons that they, they stand up and laugh and and. and have a good time because they're so progressive and they've figured things out. And 
You know, this is easy to discern when the activity is clearly sinful, when the Bible clearly calls something out as sinful. But, but these enemies of the cross, they're so deceptive. We're told about wolves in sheep's clothing. We're told that the enemy can appear as an angel of light. There's a measure of truth that's still founded on lies. The, the right examples will call sin what sin is. They will strive to put their own sin to death. They, they, they may be honest about their own struggles in their own, and, and their own weaknesses, but the right examples will not celebrate their sin. Instead, they will celebrate the g- grace of God that covers their sin, the love of God that overlooks their sin, even as they seek to put it to death, the goodness of God that accepts them upon the righteousness of Christ that enables them even to be in his presence. They will not celebrate immorality or impurity, but rather will strive for purity. The right example will set their minds on eternal things over earthly things. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. They glory in their shame with their minds set on earthly things. And, and, and brothers and sisters, I think this is probably the one that plagues us as a people in these recent years most heavily. Because it has been so obvious what the stresses and strains of this last two, three years has done not just to the culture, but to the church. And we may not feel it all in this room because we are a pretty close-knit group of people. And we do see, I, I think we strive to find ways to unite past those things that we see differently. But I know pastors that have been fired and lost their job because they stood for the, 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 the truth of the gospel over a political view. I know churches that have split because they, they, they didn't do the right thing about masks, according to half of the church. I know that there's people in this room that have even struggled talking to other people in this room because they see something posted on Facebook that causes them concern and doubt that they never address with the person. And then when I talk to them, I tell them, you got to let it go or you got to go talk to the person. It's been my understanding, at least, that those things have been let go. The right examples set their minds on eternal things over earthly things. There's a reason for this. There's a reason for this because of who we are. We are citizens of heaven. Our our citizenship is in heaven. This is not our home. Thank God it's not our home. Because if, if this is where we have to live forever, I don't want to live here. Do you? No. This is not what we've been promised. This is not what we've been told is our reward. This is not anything in measure to what God has said we will have in Jesus Christ. Except that he promised until that day comes we will struggle. We will be hated, Jesus said. We will have to struggle, Jesus said. But take heart because I've overcome. We are citizens of heaven. We are not at home here. We are in the world, but not of the world, Jesus says. John chapter 17, verses 15 through 21. We are sojourners, strangers, and aliens. We're just passing through. We're pilgrims on a journey. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 11 through 12. We have been transferred out of the domain of darkness into the kingdom of his son. Colossians 1.13. John Piper, in a, in a sermon recently, he, he, he uh, around 2016 actually, Maybe in response to what was going on politically. I, I don't know. I didn't look that far into it. But, but this, this, this just spoke. As redeemed children of God, our primary and decisive citizenship is in heaven, not in America or any other country. With the transfer of our citizenship to heaven, we have become sojourners and exiles in America and everywhere else on earth. 
We have to participate here. We have to live here. We have to interact here. We have to live next door to people who don't agree with us, who don't even welcome us. We have to be here. This will affect, though, how we live here. This citizenship in heaven, it doesn't mean that we don't have to obey the laws in America. We know that's not true. It doesn't mean that we don't have a stake in what happens in America. We know that's not true. We can participate in all kinds of ways, business, politics, education, social work, you name it. We can can participate. But because our citizenship and our primary home is in heaven, that will always determine how we participate. One example of that, I think, would be uh, uh, not too confrontational for you. Uh, But there was an organization here that was... It was called Go 61. It's a human trafficking organization. Over the last 10 or so years, this, this, there was a massive push, a massive, a massive focus on, on going into uh, these, these places where there's, where there's all kinds of, of, of sex trafficking and, and just abuse and all this stuff. And so this organization, the, the, the lady who started it, she wanted to, to, to reach into that and to make a difference. And she came and she asked, can we use the house next door as our headquarters? And I asked her, I was like, well, what does your organization stand for? And she laid it out. We're all about human trafficking. We're trying to seek to relieve and help women and children and people who are stuck in this out. I said, okay, well, how are you doing that? Well, first, practically, we meet them where they are. But then we tell them about Jesus. We can partner at that point. We can step in close at that point. There's a lot of people doing a lot of good social things that will lead people dead in their sin. I'm not saying they shouldn't be doing those things. Let them go do those things. But as citizens of heaven, we have an eternal view that as we do the good thing, we must do the better thing, do all we can to make sure they know Jesus. Without it, We'll never. See, here's the reality. Because our citizenship is in heaven, we might participate here, but our identity is not here. Our hope is not earthly. Our solutions for the problems of the world are not earthly. Our purpose, our identity, our motives, and even where we're headed, destruction versus eternal life with Jesus, is different. So our examples that we follow, they may externally look the same, But underneath, there will be a whole new reason and way of operating because our citizenship is in heaven. So though our participation may look, there should be a great difference in the reasons we do things and the way we engage in things. So as if you decide to get into politics, which I encourage, get in politics. Christian, go be an influence in this nation. We need it. But don't go be an influence that says, oh, man, I just want to make a lot of money and set myself up and get all the laws passed that make me feel comfortable in life. To the glory of God, go be a politician. I think you're going to find that difficult. But it's a necessary mission field. Business. You run a business. You work for a business. You be a Christian at that business. Be the best employee or the best boss because you're a citizen of heaven. Take care of your employees, not because you have to, but because it's honorable to God, good for people. Don't steal from your boss, not because you can't, and not because everybody else around you is not, because they are. Be the best employee you can, because you're not a citizen of earth, you're a citizen of heaven. So all the ways, the reasons we do things and even the ways we participate in them will be different because we're citizens of heaven. The right examples will set their minds on eternal things over earthly things. And and, and the right examples will not be overcome. And if they are, they won't stay there long. Because it seems like this place is so bad. Because it is. But we'll know. The very next promise he gives us, we await a Savior who's coming to transform us, to be like him. So it won't be a fight to follow these examples anymore. It will be very natural to who 
we are. That leads me to the last point. The right examples eagerly anticipate Jesus' return rather than ignore it or deny it. Paul says the enemies of the cross, they, they're, they're into destruction, right? Like that, that's, they're into destruction. Somewhere inside, I think every one of us have the knowledge of eternity and we recognize this. I, th- I don't think that. I know the Bible teaches that. And they seek to deny it, ignore it, overcome it on their own. But it isn't true for us. We profess that Jesus is our Savior. He saves us. We don't participate in that. We don't help Him in any way. He is our Savior. It's His power that brings us out and, and, and sets up out of the miry clay and sets us on the rock. Jesus is our Savior. He is our Lord. We submit to Him and conform our life to His. We follow examples that emulate Him and reflect His nature. Rather than demand Jesus bow himself to us. He is our Lord. He is supreme over us. Jesus is the Christ, God's anointed one, chosen to redeem and restore. From before the foundation of the world, this was always going to be the case. Jesus was coming to die and then rise. And now we trust in him and his work alone. Every example we follow, it sets our eyes to him. It points us to him. It directs us to act and helps us learn to, to, to follow him. And the right example eagerly anticipates Jesus' return rather than ignore it or deny it because Jesus anticipates his return. And until he comes, until he returns, he is interceding for us on our behalf with the Father. So we trusted him. We looked at his power. We looked at his salvation. We looked at him as Lord. We conform our lives to him so that not only is that the example we're following, but that's the example we set. So be careful, brothers and sisters, what you allow to influence you and inform the way you live. I want you, I, I want you to think and believe and do like Paul. Not so you can be like Paul, but so you can be like Jesus. And though I'm not Paul, and neither are the other two elders, pastors here at this church, Paul, we are not perfect. We have not attained the resurrection. I am confident the work of Christ in us to be able to say this, follow us as we follow Christ. Not because I'm self-confident, but because I'm Christ-confident. Let's pray.